This holiday week, on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, The Fall Line is re-releasing one of our most powerful series, and one we get the most feedback on from our listeners. Our three-episode coverage of Carolyn DeFord's work on the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and relatives in the United States and Canada, and the story of her own mother, who was counted among them. Carolyn's mother, Leona Kinsey, disappeared in 1999 in La Grande, Oregon. Carolyn's search for her mother has continued, even as she's worked to help countless other families, both in her official role in the Puyallup tribe, through her advocacy group, Missing and Murdered Native Americans, and via supporting legislation at the state and federal levels. Trust us, you won't want to miss Carolyn's story, or Leona's. These are really powerful episodes. This episode contains brief discussion of sexual assault and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is The Fall Line. We planned a number of series this year, including national ones, and those focused on advocates using social media to raise awareness in cases. Those focal points brought us to the story of Georgia Leah Moses and her sister Angel, whose social media campaign has ignited recognition of Georgia's cold homicide case. It also brought us to a number of Facebook groups and blogs and collaborative projects that you'll be hearing more about this year. One of those pages is Missing and Murdered Native Americans. Operated by Carolyn DeFord, this Facebook page allows users all over the world to share cases of missing and murdered Indigenous people, mostly in the United States and Canada, among themselves, within groups, and in the regions where the cases originate. Missing and Murdered Native Americans features both cold and active cases, with a focus on the most urgent messages people who have been missing for only a few days, or even hours. Using social media, Carolyn is able to coordinate with families to circulate images, contact information, and important details to thousands of people in a matter of minutes. In fact, that's how we came upon her work. We also shared the posts from her page. The page started in October of 2017 and now has nearly 20,000 followers. Carolyn also maintains a Gmail address where she receives information on cases and stays in touch with families, and uses that information to share cases via social media, too. When we first began to research the Missing and Murdered Native Americans page, in hopes of spotlighting the resource, we knew nothing about who ran it. We just knew that, like other groups on Facebook and Instagram, it was an important resource. But when we dug a little deeper, we discovered that Carolyn, its founder, is herself the daughter of a missing person. Carolyn's mother, Leona Kinsey, was part of the inspiration for the page and the work Carolyn has gone on to do in other areas of her life, including her formal role in the Puyallup Tribe of Indians as Trafficking Project Coordinator. Carolyn has also spoken publicly, often in formal situations, about the need for legislation to address the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, 
and all Native people. Like Anita Lucchese of Sovereign Bodies, Carolyn is disturbed by the lack of sound data on the true number of missing and murdered Indigenous people in the U.S. and Canada. In fact, she was one of a number of women who pushed for House Bill 2951 in Washington. The bill, described as, quote, an act relating to increasing services to report and investigate missing Native American women, was presented in 2017. We knew this about Carolyn before we spoke with her, and we knew that she'd been pushing for renewed interest in her mother's cold case and advocating for other families, both online and in real life. What we didn't know was how much Carolyn would tell us and how deep and complex those stories would be. Her childhood, the story of her mother's disappearance, and her own work all unfolded over hours of interviews with Brooke this spring. As soon as we heard the tape, we knew Carolyn's story and Leona's story and how the two intertwined to shape the work that Carolyn does today. They could not be told in a single episode. And we think you'll agree. Sitting down and listening to Carolyn speak was one of the best experiences we've had this year, and we're so glad we can share her stories. Carolyn DeFord is a citizen of the Puyallup Tribe of Indians of Washington State and lives in Yelm, Washington. She's a trafficking project coordinator, an activist, a mother, a grandmother, and a policymaker. Brooke spoke with Carolyn over the course of a few weeks in spring of 2021. The original plan had been to talk about her mother, Leona LeClaire Kinsey's 1999 disappearance, and Carolyn's advocacy work, and how social media has changed the landscape of what she does, how it could have helped her back when she was the family needing help and not the advocate. But we ended up learning a lot more. The interview was different right away. Somehow, it was hours long. And Brooke realized that they hadn't even gotten into a third of the questions she had planned. The conversation had simply taken its own path. They began by discussing Carolyn's childhood and her earliest memories of living with her mother in the Pacific Northwest. The story of her mother, Leona Kenzie, doesn't start or end with her disappearance, and neither does her daughter, Carolyn's. Their whole lives together, the befores, and Carolyn's after are wrapped up in all the days and weeks that weren't that day in October 1999 when Leona vanished. To understand how Carolyn has tried to piece together what happened to her mother, you have to understand Leona, but you have to understand Carolyn too. In the pictures we've seen of Carolyn's mother, Leona is lively. She is slim and wears various pairs of big frame glasses, and she nearly always has bangs, and she's smiling, always caught in movement, maybe in conversation. She's almost never actually posing for a picture. She's grinning at Carolyn's new baby, or she's walking across a room, laughing at a joke, engaging in life. In the first interview, Carolyn told us about her life with Leona and her earliest memories of growing up in the Pacific Northwest. I was born in Olympia, Washington in 1973, June 1973, and Olympia is about 10, 15 miles outside of the Nisqually Reservation, and my mom and my grandfather and my grandmother and a bunch of cousins and my uncle um, had lived on the Nisqually Reservation for quite some time. 
so my mom moved to Yelm, which is a little a little town outside of the reservation, and the closest hospital was Olympia. So when I was little, I had a pretty tight circle of of close family. Um, my mom was really close with with my uncle and my grandfather, and I have a lot of of wonderful memories of of my grandpa and his home on the reservation and and spending time with him and my dad and and all my little cousins and everything and my mom and my dad separated when I was maybe two or three years old I was pretty little um, and I don't really remember that but I remember my dad just not being there and my mom started dating another man that was pretty abusive we left Yelm when I was maybe three and moved to La Grande, Oregon, where my mom's sister lived. And so we moved to La Grande with my Auntie Velma. And my mom left this, you know, left to get away from this abusive man. And we kind of just relocated down there. And then my mom was working and and doing well. And somehow her and this guy rekindled. And he moved to La Grande, too. And the relationship didn't change. It was still pretty violent. And he left. You know, we lived in a, a couple little houses, like little bitty houses. We lived in a big apartment. It was an old house, a really old house in La Grande, and it's called Mustard Mansion now. And it's just this big old house that all of the rooms have been turned into little apartments. And so a lot of the college students in town stay there. And that's kind of where one of my first really, you know, first really vivid memories of of our home is or was. My mom met my stepdad when we were living there and she liked to go out and she liked to go dancing and hanging out with her friends and she liked to go to the bars and listen to music. And I remember the night I met my stepdad, I was, I was just little, like very vivid memories of how I felt, but you know, I can't really see anything in those memories. And I I know I'm in my bedroom and my, or my mom's bedroom and tiny little apartment where we probably shared a room I don't you know I don't remember but the my mom had come home um from hanging out with her friends that night and the bedroom door was cracked a little bit and they were out there you know hanging out and laughing and joking and and I was crying and scared and I remembered my mom coming in and telling me you know go to sleep everything's fine go to sleep and um, just being, hearing all the hooping and hollering. And now that I'm older, I look back and think I probably associated that hooping and hollering and that good time with pretty soon things are going to get ugly, you know, but, you know, I don't remember. It's just kind of what I think in hindsight, why I was so scared of it. And my stepdad came in the room and asked me what was going on. You know, what was I crying about? And you know, he's just a, a, a logger, you know, a country dude. And, and I, I can hear him in my head, you know, what's going on in here? What are you crying about? Um, and he, I said, I want my mom. And he picked me up and he said, your mom's fine. You know, look, and he took me out in the living room and showed me my mom and showed me everybody and said, everybody's having a good time. Everything's okay. You're okay. And I calmed down and he took me back into my room and 
opened the door and, you know, cracked it open and said, I'll leave the door open for you. And he's like, nothing's going to happen. I won't let nothing happen to your mom. And she married him. And he, he was kind of like, I don't know. I tell him sometimes that you were my light in the dark, you know, that at this very scary time of, you know, my dad's out of the picture and this abusive guy's out of the picture and we're in this home, this new home now. And he just came in with uh, a big heart and a lot of love and, and loved me as his own. He's still here and he's still, he's still my light in the dark. You know, he's still my dad. They got married and we moved into a small trailer um, in Sacagawea trailer, trailer park in La Grande, Oregon. And we lived there until I, till I was like 21. I never really realized how lucky I was to not have to move around. I knew I was rooted and all of my friends lived in the same circle of this, of this trailer park. And that was where I grew up, where I went to elementary school and, you know, played with my friends outside and, you know, we would ride bikes and, you know, go to the little creek up the street and go swimming. And, and there was always parents, you know, watching us and keeping an eye on us. And, and I'm still, you know, those friends are still my friends. My dad being a logger, we spent a lot of time out in the woods, um, especially in the summer when I didn't have to go to school. My mom always liked going up to logging camp with him. And as a kid, I hated it because there's nothing to do. I wanted to be in town with my friends and going to the swimming pool and playing. We'd stay up there for a week and then come down and come into town and, you know, restock supplies and clean up and do laundry and all that stuff and go back up. And my mom loved it. You know, she, any free time, she wanted to be in the mountains. That was her favorite, her favorite place. And a lot of my memories are in those mountains. You know, when you look at the Grand and all the mountains around it, that's where I grew up. We spent a lot of time hanging out in the, in the woods while my dad was at work, you know, and she would um, show me different plants that I could, that I could eat or, um, we would pick mushrooms or pick huckleberries and she would always, you know, we were always eating fresh, you know, fresh mushrooms, morels and, and other mushrooms that we would pick out in the woods and always had like huckleberries for pancakes and muffins and ice cream. And there was a, you know, we had, we were always fishing in the little creeks, you know, and we had a lot of fun. And my mom taught me a lot about, about nature, like every little critter that lives in the water in those creeks, I've I've caught, you know, I, we call them mud puppies and they look like little axiotls, but little salamanders with, they look like the luck dragon kind of. Um, so I, I just was always being able to observe and look at and check out all of this wildlife and my mom's respect for nature and for those little animals and how she taught me to, you know, respect them and not hold them for too long because they're cold-blooded and we're hot you know and our skin is you know we burn their skin and the acid on our skin you know hurts them and you know just watch them you don't have to touch you know and I can touch them a little bit or hold them and and whatnot but she would always have me put them back you know put them back where their home is I didn't realize how educational that was or how much empathy and compassion that that taught me for for life, not just human life, but for other little critters, you know, for, for other life. 
Do you know where your mom got that knowledge and love of nature? Do you know much about her childhood? I don't know a whole lot about her childhood. Um, She was born in Salem, Oregon, and lived there for her young years, you know, like her elementary school years. And then when my grandfather and my grandmother got older, they moved back to Nisqually to the Nisqually Reservation. Um, I think my mom probably spent a lot of time out, you know, out in the woods with my grandfather. I think it was just around her all the time. A lot of it was, was survival too. I wasn't much of a hunter, but my parents did, you know, they hunted every season, you know, deer and elk and antelope and sometimes cougar and bear and, and grouse and pheasant. There was a time of the year to harvest, you know, food, whether that's plants or, or wild, you know, animals we did. And, and that was what our freezer was full of. And other people, you know, have to buy me and we didn't have to do that. But I wish I knew a little bit more about, you know, about where she learned those things. But I think it was just ingrained in the way that she was raised to care about, to care about life, you know, that, that all life is connected and maybe just a cultural teaching. I I wish I could ask her. When we were out there, you know, if we weren't doing something, if we were just at camp, you know, there was always a creek and she would sit out, you know, sit in the creek with me or sit by the creek with me and teach me how to make a little dam so that I had a little deeper spot in the creek to play in and I would catch little fish and put them in my in my little area, and um, I stayed pretty busy doing that. Can you describe for people who are not familiar with it, including myself, what does a logging camp look like? Um, you know, what where do you stay, and how many people are there? So in Eastern Oregon, logging was pretty heavy, you know, was a, was a pretty serious industry in the seventies and eighties. My dad always had like a, he'd find a clearing, like a meadow or the one I'm seeing in my head right now is a meadow and it had a little Creek running through it. Um, and it was our trailer, you know, our camper trailer, and then maybe my dad's boss and a couple of other coworkers. And sometimes those coworkers and their wives would have kids that would come up, but usually not not for very long or not very often, but it was just, you know, these people that, that worked with my dad, that my, you know, that my dad had knew and they'd come home from work every day and go into their own little trailers and wake up and drive to work, you know, and it was just deep in the mountains. Like sometimes it was just cause it was so deep in the mountains that driving home every night wasn't realistic. And so when my mom could, we'd go up there and stay. You know, those were really good times. And I, I feel like that was kind of maybe the happiest of times. I think everything was really good for us until maybe nine, 10 years old. They thought I was kind of old enough to be home alone for a little while. And and so they would go out more and um, I had babysitters or I would be home for an hour or two by myself or, you know, and as I got older, that those times, those times changed, you know, they got longer. And was it just you and your mom and stepdad? Yep. For a little while, when I was about 12, my dad's daughter came to stay with us for a little bit. And then she 
she was only there for a few months and then she moved home. And, um, you know, up until then, my mom, you know, she cooked dinner every night and she made cookies and brownies and, and jerky. And, you know, she was always cooking and, and preparing food and putting it in the freezer. And, you know, if you came over, you ate, you know, if you came over, she, she tried to feed everybody. And, um, I think she was really proud of that. You know, it was one of the things that she would say as I got older, remember when I used to cook three course meals for everybody every night? Um, cause those were happy times, you know, and as I got older, they drank more and we argued, you know, I, I had more of an attitude and, um, there's things that happened when I was a kid that I didn't understand until I became an adult. And I carried a lot of anger, um, a lot of anger at my mom. And it wasn't until I, you know, became an adult and was able to look back at things in hindsight and understand what my mom was going through or what had happened to her. And, you know, we're about 14 years old and still living in the same trailer park. My mom and dad separated. Um, he still came over, you know, every weekend or, you know, came to see me or take me out to dinner and, and that kind of stuff. But he didn't live with us anymore. And I blamed her for that. You know, to me, he was such a nice guy. How could anything be his fault? How could he be responsible for any of that? And so I, I was really mad at her um, about that. And I wouldn't talk to her much for a while um and I didn't know the whole story you know I still don't know the whole story they don't you know but I feel a little bad for blaming her so much um around that same time it was the summer maybe my eighth or ninth grade year that my mom went out dancing one night and she didn't come home and when I you know, she came home the next morning and she was crying and she was upset and she took a shower and was in the shower for a long time crying. And when she got out, she went to bed and she had me come lay down with her in bed and just laid in bed and cried. And she said that she, somebody stopped her to ask for directions and she went up to the car and they pulled her and they pulled her in and that they took her out into the country roads and she was able to jump out and get away. But she was scared because she left her purse, you know, her, she didn't have her purse. She didn't know if it was in his car or if it fell out when she jumped out or she didn't know. And it had all of her information and he would know how to find her. And she said, she didn't know, you know, she didn't know who he was, but I think from that, from that point, like that's where I can recall things kind of changing. You know, and in hindsight, now I know, you know, I believe anyway that she, you know, that she was a victim of, of sexual assault and was probably raped that night. When I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't think anything about it, you know, just that my mom was in the shower for a really long time that day. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that wasn't, that wasn't like her. And she's dealing with this stuff in her head and, and she's drinking more and, and hanging out with friends more and we kind of argued a lot there was a like that power struggle there maybe two years went by and my mom went out and 
she didn't come home that night. And the, the police called the next morning and said, you know, that my, my mom had been hurt and she was okay, but was there anybody home that could come get her? And I said, no. And they asked if I was old enough to drive and said, no. And they asked if I knew anybody, you know, can you call anybody that can come get her? And I said, no. And they asked if I knew how to drive. They, they were okay with you not having a license as long as you could get there. I don't know, you know, because I said no. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, you know, I wonder if they would have had me try and come get her. But I was just mad at her. I was like, nope, she can. I was just mad. You know, I was a brat. She had been running. It was after the bar. You know, she she had left the bar. And what I was told was that she was running from some guys and she fell. And her leg went in the drain. There's kind of a drain that goes under the sidewalk. If the sidewalk comes down and meets the road, there's like a gap right there where water can run off the road. Like a storm drain. Yeah. And she slipped there and her leg went in the hole and broke in two places. And when she came home, she was laid up. You know, she was she was pretty immobile and she was in a lot of pain. She was in a cast from from her foot to her the top of her thigh and it was summer and she was stuck, you know, she was stuck on the couch and she was like that for several months. And even after she got better or even after she could get up and walk around, you know, she still kind of had some pain, you know. Were you still angry with her? I I found new reasons to be angry. You know, I was a kid. I was mad at her because she was drinking. I was mad at her. Um, you know, I had always protected this. You're, you're raised not to talk about the bad things that your parents do, right? Mm-hmm. You know, my parents always smoked pot. And, you know, that was just a given, you know. And I thought everybody's parents did. And that everybody didn't let their, you know, everybody's parents didn't let their friends come in the house because of the same reasons, you know. Um but my mom would, you know, I had to ask before my friends would come in and my mom would have to make sure everything was put away and stuff. I always kept that secret, you know, and as she got older, those, you know, and she was dealing with, you know, being a, a young victim of domestic violence and and sexual assault, I think that really impacted how she coped with those things. And, you know, divorce and having a bratty teenager and and um, my mom struggled with addiction from about my sophomore year, well, for the rest of her life. And I was mad at her about that. And, and you know, addiction changes people's personality. And, and she, for me, was hard to deal with and hard to understand. And I was mad at her, you know. And, and we didn't get along really great most of the time. But even in the worst of times, you know, if I had gotten myself in trouble or if I was heartbroken over, you know, teen, teen romance, you know, my mom always came through for me. You know, she always put everything aside and was, was there for me. She was just that support, you know, you're, you're going to be fine. You're okay. And she would either make light of the situation and make humor of it, or she would try and give me a, a talk. 
I don't talk about that, about her addiction a whole lot, just because sometimes people say really mean things. That's what I'd always avoided by not talking about her addiction was trying to keep that from happening. But I mean, I can't hide it. It's part of, it's part of who she was and what she struggled with and how she coped with it and how she dealt, you know, the best way that she, that she knew how. And she's still like through all that. Um, she was still my mom, you know, um, when I was a freshman in high school, I was seeing a boy in school and, you know, it was in hindsight, it was stupid, you know, but I was seeing this boy in school and he had a, a couple of, of ex-girlfriends at school. It's a small town. And one of them wanted to, wanted to fight me. And they caught me outside after school and I got into his car and shut the door and he was out there trying to send them, you know, trying to tell them to go away. And one of them came up and was knocking on the car window and said, you know, telling me she's going to kick my ass and get out of the car. And I, I said, no. And she said, roll the window down. Then I want to talk to you. And I rolled the window down and she reached in to grab me and I rolled the window back up and she's screaming, you know, roll the window down, roll the window down. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, she's really good to me now, you know? And, um, these girls were older than me and bigger than me. And, and I ended up rolling the window down and we left. Uh, I let her go. (laughs) We left and I went home and was crying. And my mom was like, what are you crying about? You know, what are you crying about? And I was like, I got in a fight. And my mom was like, you got in a fight. You know, why? You know, what, what happened? And I, I told her and she said, you rolled her arm up in the window. And I was like, yeah, you know, yeah and my mom was like you rolled her arm up in the window why didn't you get out of the car and I was like because they they were gonna beat me up and my mom was like you stand your ground you you know you stand your ground you don't back down from anything like that I had to take you over to her house now and let her let her finish the job I can't believe you wouldn't even get out of the car and um and she called my aunt and I talked to my aunt and my aunt was like, what happened? And I told my aunt, she's like, oh, sweetie, you know, don't back down. You can't back down from those things. They'll always pick on you and always bug you. If you back down, stand your ground, you might get hurt, but they won't mess with, mess with you again. You know, don't back down. And so my auntie taught me, you know, a little bit about, about fighting and I never fought and I still you know, that, that just was not in my nature, but I knew that if I ever got in a fight again, that I better not, (laughs) I better not back down, whether it was my fault or not, you know, but, um, my mom was so disappointed that I wouldn't get out of the car. And I was like, I thought I did a good job. You know, I thought I, I avoided the fight. I, I thought I would be good girl when I got home. not that I would have, you know, disappointed, disappointed her. Um, and that was kind of a difference in my mom's personalities and mine was that my mom was that fighter. My mom was that don't back down, you know, don't take anybody's shit 
Don't back down. Don't let anybody make you do something you don't want to do. You know, stand up for yourself. And I was always more of a turn the other cheek, avoid the confrontation, stay away from the problems. I was always more that. And that's kind of my dad's, my my biological dad's personality too, is just that patience and avoid the fight unless I have to. And um, avoid the confrontation unless I can't avoid it. And I think my mom always wanted wanted me to have a little bit more of her fire. Do you think that was a protective aspect that she had developed over the years in response to some of the abuse that she had been through? Um, I think it was something that she learned as a as a kid. You know, she was a a young Indian kid living in Salem, Oregon. They were poor. My grandparents were older when they had her, you know, in their late forties, early fifties when they had her. So there, you know, and there were a lot of things, a lot of things about, about her childhood that she had to grow up with that thick skin and with that ability to fight. I think it was a response, you know, to, to having to defend herself her whole life, you know, and, um, and I think my turn the other cheek and my people pleasing, you know, like fix everything before my mom could get mad about it, make sure that this was taken care of before my mom would get mad or, you know, to just learn how to avoid the confrontation was probably my response, you know, to, to chaos, you know, the things that were scary. You have used the word bratty a few times in, in relation to yourself, but, you know, as you just said, there were elements of chaos going on in your life. And as a kid, we have no idea how to appropriately cope with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do all kinds of things when we're kids. Do you feel like you've been able to come to terms with some of the rocky interactions you had with your mom when you were young, knowing what you were going through, what you were trying to to get through? Yeah, it it took me a while, but yeah, I I blamed her for a lot of things because I was a kid and I didn't, they didn't make me happy. You know, these things didn't make me happy and that's not what I wanted. And so I was. I was bratty about it, but I don't know. My mom was pretty, when I was really young, my mom was pretty strict. She was always pretty strict. You know, she had, there were, there were certain things that you just did not do. You know, you don't lie. Um, I knew I would get in trouble. I'd, you know, get swatted on the butt and sent to my room if I, if I lied. Um, and she would usually have a good talk with me about it where I felt like, crap um don't lie don't steal um respect your elders be kind to other people and animals you know and um stand up for yourself (laughs) but as I got older the there was more lenience you know I think she was dealing with her own stuff and I was dealing with her stuff and and my stuff 
I just don't think she had the energy to deal with me anymore as far as discipline or and being strict and and that kind of thing. Maybe like she went into survival mode for herself and didn't quite mm-hmm. have it in her to to keep up taking care of another person. I think so, you know, and I thought she just didn't care in hindsight. When I was little, I thought she just didn't I was a teenager, I just thought she didn't care. I I skipped school a lot. We had this thing called Saturday school. And for every every class you missed, you had two hours of Saturday school. If I were to pull it all together today and do everything I'm supposed to do moving forward, I would still have to go to school for two more years to, to graduate, but I would have to go to Saturday school for a year and a half after that. I didn't go to class a lot. I was shy. Um, I was dealing with things. And I remember being just irritated at other people's problems like that is nothing you know and and um I was living through my mom you know through my mom's addiction and her parties and her you know her her friends and their problems were just I just didn't like being around people you know um, I couldn't relate to their problems and people would always say, you're so, you know, you're so grown up or you're so mature for your age. And, and I used to be, you know, I used to take that as a compliment until I learned, you know, that growing up early is, is a trauma response. And then I was like, oh, crap, <laughs> mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't necessarily a good thing, you know, and I never really got in legal trouble. You know, I never... I never hurt people. I, I didn't steal. Um, I started, I started acting out and drinking and, and not going to school and looking for attention other ways, you know, um, I liked boys and loud music and, you know, I just did, I just did the teenage stuff, I guess. But it's kind of it's kind of at that time period, you know, from 15 to 16 that things were ugly, you know, really ugly. And we fought almost every day and ugly fighting, you know, screaming at each other and she'd kick me out all the time and I would go up the street, you know, in the trailer park that I lived in to somebody else's house and and stay or in her addiction she didn't cook and eat a lot and so I would go to other people's houses and hang out because they had better food than we did. And, and, um, you know, the food we had was like top ramen and cans of chili and things that I could cook for myself, lots of cereal and tuna fish sandwiches. And, and now that her and my dad are separated, they're not hunting, all, you know, they're not out all the time hunting and, and life changed a lot at that point, you know, and when I was 16, I came home from school one day and the house was kind of disheveled and my mom always kept a, a pretty, a pretty organized house. She was a housekeeper and that's what she did by trade. Um, she worked for a lot of the wealthy people in town, you know, doctors and lawyers and business owners and, and was a housekeeper. And she had the same clients for, you know, 10 years or so. And our home was you know, it wasn't as clean and fancy as theirs, but she made sure that everything, you know, that we dusted and that we vacuumed and we swept and mopped every day and the dishes were washed and put away every day and laundry didn't pile up. And I came home one day and things were kind of disheveled 
and it was winter and we had a lot of snow on the ground kind of, you know, in the, in the winter there, they don't get much snow now, but you know, before climate change, um, we always had pretty harsh winters and I just knew something was wrong. Like why, why is that, you know, cupboard doors are open. And my mom used to drink golden seal and take different herbs and stuff. And, um, echinacea and niacin and and all these things but all of her her herbs and stuff were out and it just didn't set right you know I knew something was was off and I was looking for her like where's she at you know went down the hall and she wasn't there and you know we didn't have cell phones or anything so it's not like I could call her where are you at you know I had to wait for her to come home and and the phone rang a little while later you know maybe an hour or two went by I can't remember and and it was asking if I would accept a collect call from the Union County Jail, you know, and it was my mom. And she just said, I'm sorry, you know, um, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but, you know, call, call your dad, you know, see if you can stay with your friend across the street. She has to, you know, see if you can stay with Sharon. Um, I'm sorry, you know. I'll know more when I go to court. And that was kind of it. So she had gotten arrested. One of my friends bought methamphetamines from her and he was wearing a wire and she got, she got caught for that. And she spent six, six months in jail. I was 16. So were you staying in the house by yourself while she was in jail? Yeah. She got out for work release, so she would come, you know, she worked right across the street. Um, her her official job, you know, the one that, that had pay stubs and everything, was um, a housekeeper for the Pony Soldier Motor Inn. And she worked in the mornings there as a housekeeper. And um, so when she was in jail, she could get out on work release and go to work every day. And so I would go over there. It was just across the street, so I would just cross the street and go visit her and take the dogs over to see her because she she loved her dogs. I she might have missed them more than me. Um, she definitely worried about them more than me, you know, that I could take care of myself, but I had to take care of the dogs too, and she wasn't sure I would do that. So I got to, you know I got to see her, but she wasn't at home when I came home. You know, she wasn't there when I went to bed and that was hard. You know, it was stressful. I remember being stressed and my dad was, was still logging and he would come and check on me, you know, when he came into town on the weekends and take me, you know, wherever I needed to go, if I needed to go get groceries or needed a ride or something, he would do that. And always just check on me to make sure that I was okay. But, you know, that was just, on the weekend or every other weekend or so I still went to work every day and paid my way. You know, I paid rent as soon as I, I got a job when I was 16, my mom marched me down to McDonald's. It was a hot day in July and we walked down there cause she had a driver's license and I filled out an application and she made me ask for the manager and I handed it in and they called me a couple days later and I worked at McDonald's for a year and a half. And I don't know, like, I just, 
I still had, you know, I still maintained those responsibilities. Even when she was in jail, I still went to work every day. I had a friend who lived in the trailer park, but she lived at the other end and she was a little bit older than me. And she had a baby and she was living on her own and she was super uh, supportive. And I always had a place to go with her always like my whole high school life, you know, her, her doors were always open and she'd always feed me and, and help me with whatever I needed to help with. And just, gosh, when I was having anxiety, I'd go to her house and, and it was just okay. You know, I think, I think as my friend, she mothered me a, a lot and, um, she's still, she's still, uh, a wonderful friend. And I don't know how I would have got through some of that without her, her constant kind of anchor, you know. What were your interactions with your mom like around that time? Um, I was always happy to see her, you know, when I could go see her at at work. Um, I was happy to see her. It was hard to see her in jail. I, I didn't, I remember going in there a couple times and that was always hard. You know, I, I, I didn't like it and I cried a lot and um, I would go see her at work, but I wouldn't, I didn't really try to go see her in jail a whole lot. But when I would see her, I was, I was happy to see her. Sometimes it was just a burden to have to stop what I'm doing every day and go across the street with the dog and, you know, and I was just, I was a kid and didn't, didn't want to, but after she got out of jail, she went directly to treatment. And so she went to, um, a treatment center called Baker house and it's just over the mountain. It's like an hour away. And she was there for, I think she was there for three months and I'm still home alone. I, I didn't get to talk to her or see her as much when she was when she was there. And when she got out, they had like a family day. And so you got to go up there and and spend some time with her that day. She stood in front of me and she she tried to tell me something and she started crying and I stood up and I started crying and we hugged and we never said whatever we had to say. <laughs> But I wonder, you know, I always wonder what was it she was trying to tell me that hurt so bad, you know, that that she that she couldn't say it, you know. And so she came home and she was really trying to keep it together, you know. She was trying to be good. She was trying to stay clean. She was working. Um, we got along a lot better. Um, except that, you know, I had been on my own for this long and I didn't have anybody telling me what to do or when to come home or what not to do, or, you know, I didn't have anybody, I didn't have any rules for a long time. And then she, she came home from treatment and wanted to tell me what to do, you know, and I was just so mad that, you can't keep yourself out of jail. Don't tell me what to do. You know, you got in trouble. Don't tell me what to do. And she would tell me be home by 11. And I would, I'd say, okay. And I would walk out the door and come home when I felt like it. So I was still really angry at her for some of that stuff, but we got along a lot better. And in hindsight, I don't know why she didn't snatch me up and put me in my place. 
because that was very much like her to remind me who whose child I was. Um, but she let me, you know, she let me act out. And I think we did okay for a couple of years. Next time on The Fall Line, Carolyn's story continues. We learn more about her mother, Carolyn's adulthood, Leona's disappearance, and Carolyn's own struggle to find her, and to push for interest and investigation in her mother's case. If you have any information in the disappearance of Leona LeClaire Kinsey, please call the LeGrand Police Department at 541-963-1017. We also would like to draw your attention to a podcast called War Cry, which Carolyn appeared on early this year to discuss her work. War Cry describes their show this way. War Cry is, quote, an all-Native, female-run podcast showcasing missing and murdered Indigenous women and people, including LGBTQ2S. They primarily focus on the Pacific Northwest, but also cover cases from Canada and Mexico. Please be sure to check them out. There's a link in our show notes. Also, as we begin our work with Carolyn, we found out that Marissa, who creates the podcast The Vanished, was releasing a two-part series on Carolyn's mother, Leona. Those episodes came out earlier this spring, and we hope you'll check out that coverage. Marissa's episodes are very thorough and very focused on Leona's disappearance, and she shares new details on the case. We cannot recommend them enough. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we discuss, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard, and we've begun a therapy fund for families who've been on the show. You can read a public post about our goals on our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos for only $5 a month. We've also added video live streams, which all patrons can enjoy, starting at just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, and Audrey Faulkner. Family and law enforcement interviews by Brooke Hargrove, produced and engineered by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. And please, join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families, like the family of the Milberg twins, access the service of PIs. Find a link in our show notes.